Well, please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 19 is where I would like to direct your attention primarily this morning. I've been looking forward to sharing this message with you today. You see that our title for this morning in Luke chapter 19 is The Tragedy in the Triumph. This is Palm Sunday. It's the day of the triumphal entry of our Lord Jesus Christ into Jerusalem. The presentation of the Prince of Peace to the people of God that took place on this day in history about 2,000 years ago is a day of triumph and yet we find in the Gospels that it did not end with a great triumph for the people of Israel or for the Lord Jesus Christ, but that it leads to Good Friday, which is somewhat of a misnomer. Because on Good Friday, the most tragic event in world history, and at the same time, the most wonderful event in the history of the world, took place. And we find in Luke chapter 19 the reason for that outcome, the tragedy in the triumph. As we think about the Prince of Peace and the world that we live in today, the same kind of world that he entered into, we see that the world is full of conflict. We have conflict in our nation and we have conflict around the world. Here, just some recent pictures, both from our nation and from international conflict. In the upper left here and in your lower right, we've got the war that is currently ongoing in Ukraine. And then here in the upper right and the lower left are pictures of domestic turmoil in the United States from 2020 during the riots that we experienced in that election year. Why is there conflict in Ukraine? Why is there conflict in America? Where does it come from? Has our nation and its policies contributed to the conflict in Ukraine? Many people are analyzing the causes, but the root causes, the deep cause, for not just this conflict or that conflict, but for all the conflict that is in the world. Why does the world not know peace? And why has the world never in its history known peace? What is the cause? Theologically, philosophically, what is the real cause? That's what we're going to be talking about today. You know, it's easy to wish for peace, but good things don't come by wishing for them. It's easy to say that you are for peace, but what about our actions? It's easy to point the finger at everyone else and say the problem is them, not us, not me, but what about ourselves? International disturbances, domestic troubles, interpersonal conflict abound. And what are the ingredients for peace among the nations? Peace among our citizens. Peace in our households, in our families. That's what we're going to discover. 2,000 years ago, the Prince of Peace came to our planet, but we were not ready for peace. We chose the things that make for war rather than the things that make for peace. My thesis this morning is that the Jews of Jesus' day that we're going to be reading about here in Luke chapter 19, they missed out on the peace that Jesus came to bring 
because they did not understand the things that make for peace. And so we can learn from their tragedy. We can learn from their negative example and not repeat the mistakes of the past. In your Bibles, I'd like to begin in Luke chapter 19 and verses 28 through 40. You see, our outline for this morning is going to take us all the way through Luke chapter 19, but we're going to take it a little bit out of order this morning. So look there in your Bibles in Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 28, where we have the account, the historical record, of Jesus Christ's entrance into Jerusalem one week before his resurrection. When he had said these things, Luke tells us, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, At the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away went and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. We'll stop there for now. Just like Matthew, Mark, and John also record this very important event in the life of Jesus Christ, Luke gives us some great details here about the triumphal entry. We get a glimpse into the importance of this day in the words of Jesus Christ there at the end in verse 40. If these were silent, the very stones would cry out. This was a special day. This was a day that had been long awaited. This was a day that was in the prophetic timeline in God's plan and it it had to be just so. We read about this day in our scripture reading shortly before the message. In Zechariah chapter 9, the prophecy was given. A prophecy of joy to the people of Jerusalem, Zion, that their king would come to them, that he would bring salvation with him, And that he would come in a humble way, mounted on a donkey, mounted on the foal of a donkey, a colt. And so Jesus did ride into Jerusalem as the promised Savior, as the coming King. And his disciples, who had seen all of the mighty works that he has done, they were rejoicing and praising God. They sensed that something very important was happening on that day, and the crowd grew, people who had heard and seen about the resurrection of Lazarus a short time before were coming also from this same area because they were coming from Bethany where Jesus had performed that most amazing of his miracles. And so the crowd is full of joy towards God for all of his mighty works that they had seen and there is a sense of anticipation and excitement among them. But even as Jesus Christ is in this celebratory crowd, 
he himself recognizes in his heart that not all is as it should be. Not only do we have the Pharisees asking for Jesus to rebuke his disciples, which puts kind of a wet blanket on the occasion. So not everyone in the crowd is excited about Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. But notice Jesus' own response in verses 41 through 44. And before I read verses 41 through 44, there's a quote I'd like to share with you from Alistair Begg, a, a very good Bible teacher. And in looking at this passage and looking back at Zechariah chapter 9, which is the prophetic fulfillment here in Luke and the other Gospels, Alistair Begg said it takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. That's why our scripture reading was from the book of Zechariah today. The Old Testament is written for you. Read the book of Zechariah. If God writes a book for us, we should take the time to read it. Those of you in our congregation who are following along on the annual plan for reading through the Bible in a year, I want to encourage you to keep up with that, keep on doing that. If so far in this year you have missed out on that, well, it's not too late to jump in. You can take the bulletin home. It has a daily reading list on it. Just start with where we are today and pick up from there. You're going to, of course, you know, be a little bit lost at first, but pretty soon you'll be right in the flow and understanding more and more of what you're reading. And if you have questions in your scripture reading, that's what the pastors and elders here in the church are for. Give me a call, give one of the other elders a call, and we'd be happy to talk with you about what you're reading in God's Word, in which are some things that are hard to understand. But don't let that discourage you. Just keep on reading, and you'll understand more and more. Because it takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. And that's what we're making here in our church. We're making whole Christians. All right, so as we look at the peace that Jesus Christ came to bring, I wanted to remind you of the Hebrew word, the Old Testament word, upon which the Prince of Peace is established. When we're talking about the peace that God is bringing, we're talking about a state of well-being and security. Sometimes in our English word peace, we don't get the full idea of the biblical concept, the biblical idea. And so when you hear the word shalom, you get a, a little bit better sense of what the Bible means when it talks about peace. Shalom is not just the absence of conflict, but it is a state of fullness, a state of well-being, a state of blessedness. And that's what Jesus Christ has come in order to give to us, both internally and externally. Not just well-being in our soul, but well-being in society as well. And so this sense of wholeness, fullness of blessing, is what we're talking about. But Jesus recognizes that Jerusalem, the city of peace, is not yet ready for God's shalom. But in fact, there is something missing here, some ingredients of peace that Jesus is aware of. So let's read then in Luke chapter 19, verses 41 through 44. And this really is the heart of the message. This is the passage that inspired me to preach this passage and to share this message with you today. When he, that is Jesus, drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. While all of his disciples are rejoicing, praising God, glory in the highest, Jesus is weeping, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. 
but now they are hidden from your eyes. You can sense the love and the longing that the Lord Jesus Christ has in his heart for the holy city, the city of David, his forefather, the city where he is destined by God to sit as king, not only over the Jews, but over all the kings of the earth. And he recognizes that in this city, Jerusalem, the city of peace, that they do not know the things that make for peace. That these things, the ingredients of peace, the stepping stones, the pathway to peace, is hidden from the eyes of the people of God's holy city. If there is any place on earth that should understand peace, it should be Jerusalem. But if there's any place on earth that does not have peace, it is Jerusalem. This is the tragedy that is in the midst of this triumphant day. And so Jesus Christ prophesies in verse 43, The days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Knowing what makes for peace, as Jesus says, is of utmost importance. For if we do not know what makes for peace, then we will have its opposite. We will not have well-being. We will not have fullness. We will have disturbances. We will have wars. We will have conflicts. We will have trouble. We don't get peace by wishing for it. We don't get peace by visualizing it. What is the pathway? How do we actually get this kind of peace? Well, let's look at the consequences for not knowing that. Come with me also to chapter 20. Chapter 20, verses 9 through 18 here in Luke's Gospel. Jesus says in the following chapter, as he is in Jerusalem, he begins to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him, so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not! But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. 
Come with me also to chapter 21, verse 6. What are the consequences for not knowing the things that make for peace? Being broken to pieces and being crushed, according to Luke chapter 20, verse 18. Look at Luke chapter 21, verse 6. As for these things that you see, speaking of the temple, the beautiful stonework, all of the amazing offerings, the tribute that had been given, gold and silver. As for these things that you see, Jesus said, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Just as Jesus had prophesied in chapter 19, so he prophesies again in chapter 21 of the destruction of the holy city and its temple. Come down to verses 21 to 24 of the same chapter. The ESV translation has a title for this paragraph, Jesus foretells destruction of Jerusalem. When you don't know what makes for peace, then what you get is destruction. When you see, Jesus said in verse 20, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance, to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. This is Jesus' country. These are his people. This is his land. This is his holy city. And as, as patriotic and as much you might love your home and your country and your land and your kindred, Jesus Christ had a purer love. He had a deeper love. He had a greater love. Unstained by any selfishness or sinfulness. And how he wept over the people as he foresaw their destruction. God takes no delight in the death of the wicked. Now, here in Luke chapter 21, we have a whole chapter about the coming of the Son of Man, but the chapter focuses on the destruction of Jerusalem that was going to take place a generation after Jesus Christ in 70 AD. Jesus was crucified and resurrected in 30 or 33 AD, according to different chronologies. And in 70 AD, this prophecy was going to be fulfilled, that the stones of the temple were not going to be left one on top of another as the Romans surrounded the city, besieged it, captured it, and put to death over a million of the Jews living in the Holy Land at that time. Jesus prophesied this to his disciples, and it was written down in the Gospels before it happened. The book of Acts was written by Luke as the sequel to the book of Acts. The book of Acts ends with Paul in prison in Rome, which took place in 62 AD, eight years before the destruction of Jerusalem. 
the book of Luke was written before that book. All the evidence points to the fact that the book of Acts was written in 62 AD when Paul was in prison in Rome. And so this prophecy of the surrounding of Jerusalem and the destruction of its people was written down by the apostles and those who worked with them before it happened, even as Jesus gave it 40 years earlier. Notice that Jesus tells the Jewish people in verse 20, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, know that its desolation has come near. And he tells them to flee. Now, normally, it's not very easy to flee a city once it's been surrounded by an army. The whole point of surrounding a city is you don't let anyone in or out. And so this seems like some strange advice from the Lord Jesus Christ that when you see, that's when you flee. Because it's too late, normally, at that point to do so. But in the siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD, started years before that, it took some time, as sieges do. But when the Romans surrounded the city, I'd like to share with you what Bible teacher Jack Kelly wrote on this subject. Although 1.2 million Jews died in Rome's defeat of Israel, according to the historian Josephus, not one Christian who believed the prophecies of Jesus perished in the siege of Jerusalem. Let me read what else he wrote on the subject. In what appears to be poor advice, Jesus told them to get out of town when they saw the holy city being surrounded by enemy troops, an event that took place nearly 40 years later. The objective of a besieging army was to trap everyone inside, so the plight of starving women and children would have a discouraging influence on the leadership. Non-combatants were not allowed free passage through enemy lines for this reason. But a strange thing happened in the siege of Jerusalem. After surrounding the city, the Roman army was suddenly told to abandon their position and prepare for an immediate departure to Rome. General Titus, who commanded the army, was the son of Vespasian, a man who was striving to become the Roman emperor. Vespasian, fearing that he would need extra help to consolidate his power, he ordered Titus to bring the army home to assist. But before they departed, another message arrived saying that all was in order and they could resume the siege of Jerusalem. So for one week, the siege lines had been abandoned, and during that time, any Christians who heeded the Lord's earlier warning escaped. And this is how the Jews who did not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ remained in the city, thinking, the army is departing, we're okay. But the Christians saw that the desolation was near and fled and survived. The Lord's advice had been sound and clever There are consequences for not knowing what makes for peace. So, what does make for peace? If you can't just wish for peace, if you can't just visualize it, what is the pathway? What are the ingredients? How do we create peace in our world? On the small scale and on the large scale. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ does not leave us without teaching on that subject. Come back to Luke chapter 19. Backing up, to the beginning of Luke chapter 19, before his triumphal entry, let's take a look at what the ingredients of peace are that Jesus Christ was looking for for his people. I'll read verses 1 through 10. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. 
and he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Do you see it? What makes for peace? What is Jesus looking for so that Jerusalem might be saved and not experience the catastrophe that he has foretold? He's looking for a humble heart of repentance. That is the key ingredient that leads to peace. Throughout this gospel, Jesus repeatedly emphasizes and looks for this element within the human heart. This is what creates peace, and its opposite does not. Zacchaeus is a sinner. Zacchaeus is a man who knows that he is a sinner. And he is a man who, when he met the Lord Jesus Christ, he humbled himself and repented. That is the pathway to peace. That is the solution for the world's problems. You say, well, come on, Timothy. Really? That's your solution to the conflict in Ukraine? That's your solution for the cold civil war that's going on in our country? The conflict that we have everywhere? It's as simple as humbling yourself and confessing your sins to God? This is the root. This is the human heart. This is the human condition. Everything that is in the world that mankind does, it comes out of the heart of mankind. And as long as the heart of mankind is not right towards God, it will not be right towards anything or anyone. There is no solution to the world's conflicts except Jesus Christ, humble repentance and faith in him this is what jesus was looking for among his own people it was the only thing that was going to save them from the disaster that they were weaving out of their own pride out of their own stubbornness out of their own spiritual arrogance because look at these jewish people when jesus christ asked for zacchaeus to be his host they grumbled they said, he's gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And therein is the missing ingredient. They didn't see themselves as sinners. They saw other people as the sinners. Ukraine view the Russians as the problem. The Russians view NATO as the problem. The Democrats see the Republicans as the problem. The Republicans see the Democrats as the problem. It's always someone else. If we could just get rid of those people, if we could just get those people out of the way, then we could have 
what we want and we can have peace. Peace doesn't come from getting what you want. That's where wars come from. Everyone trying to get what they want and the desires that are not lined up under God. God created this world. He's created it to be a blessing to everyone on the planet. Everyone in the world can have everything that God wants them to have. And he's good. He doesn't want to withhold anything good from us. But when our heart goes astray, and our heart is not right towards God, and we start to desire things that God has not created for us to have, that conflict within the human soul, it wars with the desires within us, and not only disturbs the peace of the human heart, but then it sets us against one another. And I want what you have, and you want what I have, and we've got to fight and war with one another. Turn with me to the book of James. James chapter 3 in your Bibles, please. Leave a marker here in Luke's Gospel and come to the letter that James wrote, probably dwelling in Jerusalem after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And James lived to see the hardening of heart of the Jewish people following the resurrection. James lived to see the people of Israel, the people of Jerusalem, continue to reject the good news of Jesus Christ, to continue to establish their own righteousness, to not humble themselves before God, and continue to have their own desires at war within themselves. And so James writes to his people, many of whom are Christians, but I think James had a heart even for all of his Jewish brethren, and he was hoping that more and more would listen as he explained to them what their real problem was. Their real problem was not the Romans. Their real problem was not the Greeks. Their real problem was not the Samaritans. Their real problem was not Herod or any of his children. Their real problem was themselves, their own evil desires. Will you be wise enough to see that the other people in this world are not your problem? You are your problem. James chapter 3, verses 13 through chapter 4, verse 10. James 3, starting verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, and then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Notice this verse. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Continue reading into chapter 4. No chapter breaks for us. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? All right, here's the answer. Where do the quarrels and the fights come from? It's them, it's them, it's them. No, 
Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Warring passions in the human heart create conflict in relationships, create conflict in the world, on the small scale and on the large scale. The same reason why there's not peace in households is the same reason why there's not peace between nations. Your passions are disordered. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But, notice this, he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the humble. I'm the right one. I'm the one who has all the truth. I'm the one who has all the answers. Everyone else is the problem. If everyone would just listen to me, everything would be sorted out. That's foolishness. Where is our humility? Where is our gentleness? Where is our reasonableness? Where is our impartiality? I love this quote by Patrick Morley. The turning point in our lives, the turning point in peace for our families, peace for our church, peace for our neighborhood, peace for our community, peace for our state, peace for our nation, peace for the world. The turning point is when we stop seeking the gods we want and start seeking the God who is. The pursuit of power is a passion that is disordered. It's a desire that is not in line with God. God establishes order. God establishes power. He establishes relationships and structures and hierarchies. But the desire to have what we don't have, the desire to have power, it comes at the expense of truth. You are either a truth seeker or a power seeker. And that's really the difference between the worldviews that we have. A biblical Christian worldview is a worldview that seeks after truth whether it costs me my life, whether it costs me my job, whether it costs me my position, whether it costs me respect and honor, whether it costs me power and influence and money, I'm willing to pay that price for the sake of the truth. Pursuing the truth at all costs is what it means to be a Christian. But for those who do not believe that truth exists, what is truth? Give me power. What was Pilate concerned about? The truth about Jesus Christ? Or how it affected his position of power and authority? He was captive to his desires. He was not bound by the Jews. He was not bound by the Romans. He was bound by his own evil desires that caused him to crucify a righteous man. Why? for the sake of pleasing his own passions. It was his disordered passions that led to the injustice. And injustice breeds more injustice. And this is what creates all of the conflict and all of the turmoil that is in our world. Do you see it? 
Do you understand it? Turn with me also to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 in your Bible, please. What are the things that make for peace? Well, that's what the book of Romans is all about. That's what we've been studying Sunday by Sunday here for the last couple of years, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the most important book ever written. And here in Romans chapter 5, I'll remind you what we studied in verses 1 through 11, probably a year and a half ago. Therefore, Romans 5 verse 1, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace starts with a reconciliation to our God, to our Creator, Not by our own goodness, not by our own works of merit, but by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, we are justified by faith in Him as the object of our faith. This creates peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2, Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So the grace of justification is just the beginning of the Christian life. It's the beginning of the things that make for peace. Without being restored to a right relationship with God, without being reconciled to God and having peace with God, you have no foundation for peace. But once that foundation is laid, God continues to build on that foundation in this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We don't have destruction and devastation in our future. Wars and conflicts. But we have salvation. We have been destined not for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we rejoice in hope. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. We're not trying to win at all costs. We're trying to become like Christ at all costs. We're pursuing the truth at all costs. And so we suffer at the hands of those who are pursuing power instead of truth. And our endurance is producing even more hope within us. And that hope does not put us to shame. Just as God saved the Christians who trusted in his word in 70 AD and they escaped from the wrath of the Romans, so we also are saved by putting our hope in God's word. That hope is not going to put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Notice what he says in verse 6. A recap of the foundation for peace. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Like Zacchaeus. Until you recognize that you are ungodly, you are not ready to receive God's salvation. It is that humble faith in God that is the foundation for peace in our own lives and peace in our world. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die, Paul writes. But God shows his love for us and then while we were still sinners. A sinner is an enemy of God. A sinner is someone who deserves God's wrath and judgment. A sinner is someone who is going to be cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. That was you. We were sinners when Christ died for us. There's no place for spiritual pride here. There's no place to look down on other people as the Jews did. But instead, we must not repeat their mistakes. 
Don't think that being a conservative Christian is like being a conservative Jew in the first century and, and that we can point our finger at everyone else and say, you know, they're the problem when we haven't dealt with the sin that's in our own heart. You know, there's a lot of conservative commentators, political commentators. If they don't have Christ in their heart, if they haven't dealt with their own sin, they're part of the problem, not part of the solution. Until the heart is reconciled to God, there is no peace, and there will be no peace, no matter how good some of your political ideas might be. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus is the answer for the world today. There is no other way. Turn with me also to the book of Isaiah. I want you to see these verses. I could just quote them for you, but now it's good to turn in your Bibles. It's good to see it in context with your own eyes. Isaiah chapter 57, verses 20 and 21. All right? Going from the New Testament back to the Old Testament. Same God, same message, same spirit. Isaiah, writing about the salvation of God throughout his book, as his name means, God is salvation. He points out here something that he mentions again, almost word for word, in another chapter of this same book. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Why? Well, look at verse 20. In fact, let's back it up a little bit. Let's pick it up in verse 16, get a little bit more of the context. God speaks to his people. He says, I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, for the spirit would grow faint before me in the breath of life that I had made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain. Notice that. The iniquity of his unjust gain. That makes God angry. And so I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. You can think about God and Jesus Christ saying this to the people of Israel in Jesus' day. And God is going to strike the people. And Jesus weeps over the destruction of the people because he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. It's the heart. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. It's not in the systems. It's not out there with the other people. It's in the heart. And God says, I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. That's a wonderful message of gospel. But... It's not the end of the chapter. It's not the end of the quotation. God continues in verse 20. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. There is one pathway to peace, and only one. If we will accept it, we will have God's peace. But for those who reject it, there is no other way. Men like John Lennon can spend their whole life visualizing world peace and that will get us no closer to it. Because the problem is not a problem of imagination. It's a problem of disordered affections. And the only way to get your affections, the desires of your heart, properly ordered is through humble faith in Jesus Christ. That's the only way. Philosophy won't do it for you. Religion won't do it for you. Self-improvement won't do it for you. Only Jesus Christ can set your heart right. 
The turning point in our lives is when we stop seeking the gods we want and start seeking the God who is. So how do we prepare? We have looked at what the key ingredient is for peace with God and therefore peace with one another. And God has revealed to us that there's coming a day of wrath. There's coming a day of judgment. There's coming a day of glory. There's coming a day where Jesus Christ has a triumphant return. And so what do we do? What are we doing? What can we do to prepare for that day? Turn with me back to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 19 once again. And this time I'd like to begin in verse 11. Back where we began, Luke chapter 19, a little bit before the triumphal entry, read with me as I read verses 11 through 27. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went away into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I have kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man, You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But to the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Christ is coming back in triumph. And when he comes back, he's given us some insights, some clues here in this parable as to what we can expect at his coming return. How are we supposed to prepare ourselves for the triumphant return of Jesus Christ? God has given you a stewardship. Each one of you have been entrusted by God with the Holy Spirit and a ministry that he has given to you in the church. If you are faithful with the little thing that God has entrusted you, then you will be ready 
for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he comes, you will have a full reward, a great reward. There is coming a kingdom of everlasting peace. What you're doing right now is going to affect your place in that kingdom. So be wise. But notice, for the one who is unwise, even what he has is going to be taken away. This verse is very anti-Marxist. The Marxist has the idea that everyone should have an equal amount. And in heaven, God's going to distribute everything evenly among people. And God says, oh no, that's not how it's going to be. Right now, you've got an opportunity to be wise. Right now, you've got an opportunity to invest. If you invest wisely, you will reap bountifully. If you invest poorly, you'll have no one to blame but yourself. Also, Jesus is very anti-liberal in saying that he is going to slaughter his enemies at his coming. This doesn't preach well in mainline churches. It's what the Bible says. For those who do not want Jesus Christ, who have a different Christ, a different spirit, the kingdom of peace cannot be established with people full of lies. The kingdom of peace will not include the wicked. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. For those who put God's word behind them, who pay no attention to the ethical commands of Scripture, but instead judge Scripture according to the ethical standards of our own lost society, there is no place for them in God's kingdom. Don't be deceived. They might talk about how much they love Jesus. They might sing the same hymns. If they don't follow the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ, they're lost. There's no peace. So how about you? The Prince of Peace has come to our planet. Are you ready for the Prince of Peace to come back? We weren't ready for him the first time. He's given us some time to get ready. We chose the things that made for war, but what about you? What are you choosing? Are you choosing a humble heart before God that recognizes that you and your evil desires are the problem in the world and that you've repented, confessed, and believed in the salvation that the Lord Jesus Christ offers to all people in all places as the good news of Jesus has been preached among all the nations? Do you have peace with God? Now that you know the things that make for peace, will you be part of God's solution? And when I say, will you be part of God's solution, what I mean is, will you be part of Christ? For Christ is the solution. And we are the body of Christ. The church is the pillar and support of the truth. What are you doing for the church? What are you doing to strengthen and support the church? What are you doing to love one another the way that Jesus Christ has loved us? Because if you are not faithful in a little thing, you will not be entrusted with much in the coming kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Are you waging peace in the body of Christ? Are your desires ordered aright, being filled with the Spirit of God so that you have the peace of God governing your heart and governing your words and governing your relationships? Do you have peace with your spouse? Do you have peace with your children? Because if you know all the doctrine but 
you are not a man of peace in your own household and you are a denier of the faith. The soul that remains disordered in its desire creates turmoil. What desires do you have that are creating turmoil within you because they are not godly desires? I'd like to end with a verse from Philippians. How about peace with God? We're talking about peace with your neighbor, but let's look at what Philippians chapter 4, verse 5 says. It says, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. We as a church have enjoyed a lot of peace. But don't get overconfident. If our desires get out of whack within us, our peace can be disrupted very quickly. Each one of you must be a contributor to the peace of the church for this is the lighthouse. And if the light is not shining in us, where will the world see the hope? Where will the world see a true answer? Where will the world find the solution to all of the conflict that engulfs it if we are not at peace with one another and in our households? Let's have a word of prayer. Father God, if there is any place on earth where peace exists, it should be here. So, Lord God, we look at our hearts this morning, in this moment, each one of us examining our own desires. Lord, if there are fleshly desires within us that are waging war against our souls and creating conflict within our families and within the church, Lord God, pinpoint those with the light of your Holy Spirit. Shine a light on that desire so that we can see it for what it is, see its destructive power for our relationship with you, our relationship with others. And so, Lord God, may we hate it and turn away from it, putting it off, replacing it with truth, putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, making no provision for the flesh with regards to fulfilling its desires. And so, Lord God, as we pursue holiness, that's the pathway to peace. Pursuing holiness not in our own strength or our own power, but because of your grace in Jesus Christ, putting our confidence and trust in him, his finished work on the cross in order to deal with our sins, his resurrection from the dead, which we're going to be celebrating this week, which gives us the power of new life at work within us. It's only by union with you. It's only by the pouring out of your Holy Spirit. It's only as your word dwells richly within us by the power of faith that we can be changed and transformed and be agents of peace in a world full of conflict. Lord, help us to see the stakes. Help us to understand the importance Help us not to lie to our souls and say, well, it doesn't really matter if I have some disordered affections. It's not affecting anyone. It's not hurting anything. It's a lie. Lord God, everything we do, everything we think, it matters. You're keeping track of it all. And you have your eye on the one who trembles at your word. You have your eye on the one whose heart is completely yours. And you will strengthen and establish that one and bring them into your heavenly kingdom. And we want that to be us. Convict us, reprove us, correct us, set us on the path that leads us to joy, welfare, fullness of peace. In Jesus' name, amen.